Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. Who gets the final word? How do we know who gets the final word? See, in life, we're all prone to think that the final say in sports is the scoreboard or the verdict in the court case. That's the final word. Maybe it's whoever speaks last in the argument or or however the vote turns out in some sort of democracy. Yet, we've begun to see that our world is still rejecting these things. Right? We can blame the refs for the outcome of the game. We've seen verdicts overturned in the court systems. We've even seen people deny democracy. Why do we do that? If these things we believe are the final say or the final word, why do we really say that these things aren't legitimate, that these things aren't the final say? Especially if we're impassioned about something or we believe something has been altered or swayed in some way that's untrue or inaccurate. What might this reveal about who we actually think has the final say? We think we do. We all think ourselves. We have this inward compulsion to believe we deserve the final say in things that matter most. And we have this outward persuading by the world that says you deserve the final say in everything. What if I said to you that The final say in things may seem incredible, but ultimately comes with an expiration date. Even yourself. You come with an expiration date. You come with a time where your words will cease. Where your records will be forgotten. Where even if you affected history, things could change even if you changed history. This ultimately shows us that we are people who do not have the final say in anything. Every vote is only a voting cycle away from being changed. No matter how loud we raise our voices against something, it seems that the wicked and deaf will not stop. Yet, what if I told you there is one whose word is the final say? Would that change the way you view the world? Would that change the way you even think about how you demand to be the one to have the final word? There is one, and it would have to be one who's conquered death, who's climaxed history. This would be the only way that someone could be the one who declares, I have the final say. And this is what Revelation teaches us today. That this person who has true wisdom, true compassion, and the power of death is the one who has the final say. And the question is, Do you trust him? Do you trust to leave all judgments in his hands? And how might that affect our lives? Who gets the final judgment in all things? 
Why would we talk about this on Resurrection Sunday? Because I believe this is one of the major implications of Christ's resurrections. The fact that he rose from the grave declares, I am the one who has the final say in all matters. Therefore, my church, be at ease. Labor hard. Even if they take your life. This is what Jesus is telling to the early churches here, the seven churches that we're studying in Revelation chapter 2. And maybe you hear the word resurrection and you're, you're either new to the faith or you're um, just here visiting with us today. We're so glad you're here. But we as Christians, we believe the, that the resurrection is this. That Jesus, God, became flesh. Literally became flesh and blood. He had a pulse. He, he had a rhythmic breath cycle. He grew in stature and wisdom before God and before man. Living a perfect life and that he died a literal physical death where his body stopped breathing. And his resurrection is the reality that three days after he rose from the grave. And the resurrection does this. It assures us that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. The resurrection assures us that the death of Christ is the final say. It's the guarantee. It's the guarantee that the sacrifice of God appeased his wrath. It's the guarantee that there is a new heavens and a new earth coming one day. Jesus is the first fruits of the new earth. The book of Romans teaches us that the resurrection is this proof. The book of Hebrews teaches us that the resurrection is the crowning event of Jesus' kingship. In Revelation, it amplifies the resurrection of Jesus and says, Now live in light of that resurrection. That's what Revelation's doing. It's, it's amplifying the fact that he is now king, and how does that mean we can live in this really chaotic world? Today, in our church calendar, right, we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus. We believe that the Bible informs us we need a resurrection, for death is coming for us all. We need someone to be both truly God and truly man, and that Jesus was this man. Think for just a moment, back to Good Friday just a few days ago. Let me encourage you, we, we have Good Friday services here, and they were a wonderful time just to be a part of that, where we reflect and intentionally set our focus on this. But think with me just for a moment. 33 years, Jesus had blood pulsing through his veins. His right foot would step, and then his left foot would step. He would sleep, he would breathe, he would eat, he would work. Did great, glorious ministries those final three years of his life testifying that he was the Son of God. Then he was falsely accused. And he lived a perfect life, therefore giving himself as a good shepherd, dying for his sheep. Jesus literally died. And just as silent as I was in those moments, that's how he was on the cross and in the tomb. No more brain activity. No more blood. No rhythmic breathing patterns. Jesus was dead. But today we celebrate something vastly different than his motionless body. Today we remember and we reflect on the fact that he burst forth from the tomb like a roaring lion, declaring, I'm alive, and my people will have my resurrection as their own one day. And this changes everything. 
This changes what we believe. This changes what we live for. This changes the way I view myself and the world that I live in. This changes everything. I am no longer my own. Jesus appeared to many before ascending to heaven as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In this book, this book, the final book in the recorded scripture, the book of Revelation, many people who are fearful of it and its nuances and its beauty miss the point. It is the amplification of the resurrected king. So don't forget who I am and live in life that. We saw last week that, that we don't have to be feared death. Why? Because he holds the keys of death. And today, we see in verse 12, look there with me. It says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So right there from the get-go, he wants you to say this two-edged sword isn't a literal sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. It doesn't retract and go in. It's a declaration of the power of his words. That he has the final say. We'll look more into that in just a moment. Revelation simultaneously encourages God's people not to fear and to remain faithful. Because there's a day coming when creation's alpha will come again and it will be a new creation's omega. Revelation's a book that shows us why the resurrection has cosmic power in its effect. So we need to consider who this God is who says, I have the final word. So today we find ourselves, if you look back there with me at the beginning of chapter 2, we see that Jesus is writing to seven churches. If you've been among us, we know that these are literal churches in the Asia area in a circular pattern by which the letter would have traveled. John finds himself on an island of Patmos, one who was being sent there because he was being persecuted for his faith, for his witness for the Lord. And he gets this great vision of heaven and of Christ that we see in chapter 1. And he's writing to the churches on behalf of Jesus. He wrote to Ephesus, he wrote to Smyrna, and now he writes to Pergamum. And it is important that we understand a little bit about the context of these cities. Because it helps us to understand more how to properly interpret the text. So Pergamum is about 60-ish miles from Smyrna. Kind of headed northeast. We see that it was... Uh, a Pergamum was built on a cone-shaped hill, 1,000 feet in height. Remember, we've been near the Aegean Sea. Now we're moving inland a little bit more. It's built on this big dome. It was dominant. The city was large. It dominated the most of the valley around the Cassius River. And many people believe that Pergamum was the capital city of this region of Rome. Some would say Ephesus. And, but you could read documents that it was here, probably in this location, when this letter was written to them. And this is important for us because it means this. It means that the proconsul's seat was in Pergamum. You're like, what's the proconsul? The proconsul was a guy in Rome who had the power of the sword. Hmm. These people lived in a city that was the capital city of Rome, and the guy who sat on the proconsul's seat was the guy who had the power of the Roman sword, which meant he had the power to take life of any threat to Rome. And Jesus said... <laughs> The one who writes to you has a two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. These are huge images that, that the people in this early church would have understood, would have empowered them to stand fast. Not only was it a capital city of this region, but it was also one of the very first temples built to living Caesars. 
in this area. Remember, we've seen multiple temples built in a lot of these cities. There was idol worship and pagan cults all over the place in these regions. But especially here, if, if Ephesus would have been like the New York City of our time, Pergamon would have been the Washington, D.C. Think of it that way. Seat of power and authority. Yet Christ applauds a, preser- a pre- preserving witness in this climate. And he rebukes a permissive spirit of compromise. If you're a note taker, three simple points we see today. First is this, that Christ applauds a preserving witness in a hostile culture. Christ applauds a preserving witness, an enduring witness in a hostile culture. Look there again with me at verse 13. I know, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 12 starts as all the other letters start in this typical fashion where Christ commands John to write to the angel of the church and says he is the one. Remind us back of the vision we had of him in chapter 1. And then he uses this beautiful phrase, I know. Every single church gets this phrase, I know. I know you. I know your works. I know here where you dwell. And this is something I think we as Christians cannot forget. It's a crucial truth that we need to understand. That Jesus knows his people. Not does he know just his people. Jesus knows all people. And not does he simply just know your deeds. The knowledge of Jesus is exhaustive. There's not a word you've ever spoken that he does not know. There is not a thought that or thought that he is not aware of. There is never a desire that you have that he is not certain about. I mean, think about it. Your spouse, your best friend, they know you. But this pales in comparison to how Jesus knows us. This is important because many of us here today think that we can fool people into thinking we're someone we're not. I'm sure there was many people in these different churches, as in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, who, who were playing games with Christianity. And he says, I know your works, and I know you, and I know where you dwell, and I know you. And so we look to Christ today. We need to understand we cannot and must not pretend with him, for he knows you. Instead, we must believe that he knows us. And plead that he would show us himself through his word. So let's continue. Jesus knows the church. And what does he say there in verse 13? I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is? Uh Uh-oh. I don't want to live there. In Pergamum. Satan's throne's there? Many people say, and maybe because of the way that the, the temple of Zeus and, and the, the different temples they had there were almost shaped like a throne on the very apex of this uh, thousand-foot dome. It looked like a, a throne. It looked like a seat. Maybe that's why he's saying this here. I think he's given us a glimpse as to some of the language he's going to be using once we get out of the seven churches and into the, 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 the larger portions of Revelation. And it's this, it's... How can we call Pergamon a hostile culture? Well, it's because literally Christ says Satan dwells there. 
Satan and God's people, they are not on the same team. They're in opposition to each other. And maybe some of you are like, well, Satan isn't that guy. He's just he's that made-up guy. Jesus is, remember, one of the things Jesus is doing in his book is he's reminding us there is both things we see with our senses and there is this other reality happening simultaneously at the same time. And Satan, we see, he is a fallen angel whom the Bible describes as the ruler of this world. So he's not just in Pergamum, he's where? Everywhere. His demonic forces are at all locations. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. 2. And both of these phrases, they teach us that Satan has significant influence, but pay attention to this, over the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of a majority of people. Satan didn't show up in Pergamum and take the knife and kill Antipas. The proconsul did. His soldiers did. But Jesus says, don't forget, that was Satan. It was his demonic forces at work in opposition to me. Satan's influence encompasses the world philosophies, education, commerce, the world's thoughts, ideas, speculations, and all false religions are under his ultimate control. He is the one who lies and deceives. But Satan does not have the final say. He does not have ultimate authority. We must remember that Satan is a created being like all of us. But that any form of opposition to the kingdom of God could be said is at the result of the king, Satan and his kingdom. Sometimes we think too little of dominions and spiritual forces that work against us. Paul wanted to remind the church in Ephesus, he said, don't forget, we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the things that we cannot see. And he tells us to be clothed in this spiritual armor, prepared for the battle. So Pergamum, this Roman city that was more than likely the capital city of this region, would have considered, was to be considered Satan's throne because any earthly political power that it persecutes God's people is the direct result of the influence of Satan. There's demonic forces. Beloved, friends here today, this is a reminder that our greatest problem is not a political one. Our greatest problem in our context is not a political one. We battle dominions. We battle spiritual forces that are at work against God's kingdom. Therefore, while we as Christians, we must engage in civil governmental structures, we should not let the loudest verse heard by our community be that of a political agenda. And I say that not because I am not proud to be an American or use every means that our Constitution give us to uphold the things that we believe in. But I'm afraid we've lost sight of what matters most. It's the kingdom of God. May all who hear our voice know one thing, Jesus reigns. And that's where our confidence lies. His word is the final word, and our deepest allegiance is to him. So like the church in Pergamum, we need to persist in our witness by holding fast to Christ not denying our faith. So Pergo was a hostile environment, not only due to this description of where Satan lies, but did you notice someone died? Look there again in verse 13. He says, Yet you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith. 
even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Antipas was a follower of Christ who Rome killed in Pergamum for his witness of Christ. But I love the language there. He held you, hold fast to my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. Think about that for a moment. Imagine, just imagine 15 years down the road, one of us is arrested. Taken and marched down by governmental authorities to city center Moultrie. Sat there in the middle of the stage and it says, will you deny Christ? And by the grace of God, we would say no and then we are killed. It's so foreign to us. We just don't, we just don't get that. Because we're so blessed, yes, absolutely, to live in this country. But what faith? What trust in God? And what would give them this great delight? Which that they believe that there is a two-edged sword proceeding from Christ's mouth declaring what? He has the final say. They can say what they want, but my king has the final declaration. We're going to see this build up in the book of Revelation that there's martyrs under the altar in heaven saying, how long, O Lord, how long until you'll, you'll defend us, until you'll bring vengeance upon our lame? And he says, not until the last one is complete. Which means what? There's more martyrs to come. But how beautiful it is. Look at what Christ does here. See, I love this. He says, I know you, the church. But he says something amazing to Antipas. Look what he says here. He says, yet you hold fast my name, and you do not know my faith, even in the days of Antipas. My faithful witness. Jesus says, this man, he's mine. It was my name he did not forsake, and I will not forsake his name either. But I love what he did. He gave them a title that we've already seen. And do you remember who else has this title? Faithful witness. This is the title given earlier by John to Jesus himself. Jesus is the faithful witness. Man, what loving endearment that Jesus gave to this man who was killed on behalf of his faith and not stepping away. He says, that's my faithful witness. All Christians, we are to live so that one day we might stand before our king and we hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Yet we must understand and also prepare and be willing to maybe even one day some of us be killed with our faith and may we hear, well done, my faithful witness. Are we prepared for that? I mean, honestly, search your souls. If there are things you're willing to die for, and what makes them willing to be dead for? There's only things that have eternal value, only things that have everlasting consequences, and only one who has the final say can strengthen us to be that type of people. But Christ applauds. He applauds the preserving witness of this church and this one martyr of the faith, Antipas. Christ, the faithful witness, gives grace to this church and applauds them and those who follow no matter the cost. Pergamum excelled in one way, but 
Don't you love that in Scripture? Most of the time we like that word because it typically means you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but here it's a little different contrast, is it not? Look there with me at the text in verse 13. We'll slide down to the end. It says, Intimus, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. I remember in school getting report cards. When, when you got report cards, what were they telling you? How you doing? Right? How, how you doing in your, your academics? How are you doing at completing the tasks given to you every day? Do you realize that as a Christian, that's what we're called to do? We have tasks given to us by God himself that we are to do every single day. See, here's what I think, unfortunately. I love this about the book of Revelations. It changes the way we view our everyday existence. We think, I've got Jesus, I go to church, and then I occasionally, if I see a good work that I can do, then I'll go do it, of course. But no, no, no. The way Revelations describes this for us is that every day you've been given tasks to do. Bear witness to Christ. The way you drive your car, bear witness to Jesus. Uh-oh. For me, that's a big one. The way you keep your home, the way you work, the way you interact. And Jesus, in some level, is giving a report card to this church, and he commends them for one thing. But here in verse 14, he rebukes them. Let's look at what it's for in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Who taught Bala to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might not eat food sacrificed to the idols or practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now what's interesting is look there with me again back in 13. I want you to pay attention to the words. But I have a few things against you. Now who's the you? He's speaking to the church in Pergamum. And he says, you have some there who? When it says you have, what kind of... English is that. It's possessive in its term. There are people in the church. Because we read this and maybe we would say, well, there's, there's this teaching of the world that's, that, that's going on. And, and you need to stand up against it. No, what, what Jesus is telling these guys, you've got some people in the church. You have some there among you, in you. The church here is being rebuked. By God, saying there is some false teaching going on among you. And it's in the, in the realm of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Again, this is not false teaching from outside, but from the inside. We shouldn't be by surprise by that, church. Paul warns the Ephesians elders to be careful of the Ephesians elders. What's going to come one day? We see in numerous places and numerous times, Paul exhorts both Timothy and those in Thessalonica to be prepared to stand against those things. Doctrine and teachings, they don't start on the outside. They typically start on the inside. Which is why we've got to be people of the word. Which is why we've got to be people who say, who has the final say? So that we can understand what already has been said and align ourselves to that. But we need to see, what, what, are these, what is this teaching of Balaam or this teaching of the Nicolaitans? But one, one thing, really quick, it jumped out at me when I was studying this. If you remember the church of Beth, they were commended for what? Their love of doctrine and their ability to stand against false teachers. But they didn't love the outside world very well. 
This church seems like they're all about the outside world, but they don't love doctrine and preserving the purity of it inside the church very well. Seems counterintuitive, but it shows us the ironic aspects of Christianity where we have to simultaneously hold to truth and loving a world around us in a way that Christ says we should. Not compromising and not backing down. So what is this teaching of Balaam? If you're familiar with the scriptures, Balaam is a reference back to Numbers. We've studied the book of Numbers here at Calvary before. Numbers is a book in the Old Testament revealing how God had rescued the people of Israel from Egypt and they were moving into the promised land. And the book of Numbers was all about their 40 years of wandering because they disobeyed God and doubted God when they were to enter the promised land. And there was this guy named Balak who was a king of one of the pagan nations around them. And, and he saw that Israel was kicking butt and taking names. And he's like, I got to do something about this before they get to me. And he hires this pagan deity named Balaam. This pagan uh, diviner, not deity, excuse me. He's a pagan prophet. He says, come prophesy against him. And he couldn't do it. And he couldn't do it. And he, God wouldn't allow him to prophesy against him. Some really cool scenes where his donkey talks to him. And I mean, it's, just, it's a really interesting section. But what we do read is that Balaam counseled Balak to use inside influence with some Midianite women, some Moabite women. Hey, just let them go in. Let them seduce the men a little bit in the region and the town and the community. And then you have them once they get inside. It says that these Midianite women, these Moabite women seduced the men and led to the worship of Baal, Peor, which was a pagan god in that community. But we must understand here, what the problem wasn't the food that they were eating. The problem wasn't sex. Like if you read it, look at the text again. It says that they, they stumbled the block that the food was sacrificed to idols or the practice of sexual, sexual immorality. The problem isn't food and sex. So it's not like, oh, we've got to stop eating and we've got to stop having sex. That's not what Jesus is saying is going on here. He says the problem is, says they were using these as a means to deceive you in order to worship a false god. They're just means of God providing for our physical well-being, providing for a husband and wife to enjoy the pleasure of intimacy and bear forth the fruit of children. And that God's given clear instructions here. These false teachers like Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans were teaching the church in Pergamon that you can have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world too. Wow. You can have one foot in the world and one foot in the church at the same time. Because the Nicolaitans, and this is one of those interesting, there's probably 13 different opinions on who these guys were. Many people would argue that it's one of the early deacons from Acts chapter 7 who began to say that you can have synergism, a little bit of the mixture of the pagan cult and Christianity and mix them together, which is just like what Balaam was doing. This is being taught from the inside. We need to understand that Jesus is not telling the church to stop being among the world. He's just saying stop being like the world. This is crucial for us to understand. We as Christians, we are not called to isolate ourselves from the world. But we're called to be different than the world. To look, to act, to think, to speak in a way that is becoming to Christ. A modern-day equivalent could be something about God's principles on sexual ethics or sexual identity or sexual orientation. The church should not look like what the world looks like when it comes to those things. We don't adapt God's truth in order to acquiesce to the people. 
We must understand that call sin, sin, and we too must call sin. And no level of cultural adaptation or compromise will ever be becoming of the church. But we must also be warned. Be warned, excuse me. Of another form of merger that I think is around. And it's this, Christian nationalism. I think that one's just as dangerous. Where we try to make our nationalism our greatest identity and Christianity just as a part to it. Yes, our Christianity affects our politics and yes, it affects the things we do in life. But America is not God's country. We must be careful that we do not pit one against the other. That we strive for the namesake of Christ above all things. We must be careful not to classify Christ into boxes by the ones we're passionate to. And not other things. Our sexual ethics, our economic practices, and our political allegiances are all given over to Christ. So Jesus rebukes them for compromising. For letting them be there among them. Look again at verse 14. You have some there who hold to, believe in, and are practicing the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might not eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some of the hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, therefore what? Repent. Now who? Immediately we read that, and who do you think should be doing the repenting? All them false teachers. But, but read it with me. Look, look at the way it's phrased. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you. The church. So the first pronoun given to us is the church. The, those who are not partaking in. Now, I do think the repentance for both, obviously, those in walking in false teaching need to repent of that and come in a long line with the scriptures teach. But, but also, the church is being called to rebuke because they're allowing it to go on among them. And look what Jesus says, I will make war against them, those who are practicing false teaching with the sword of my mouth. Wow. Jesus is not saying here is that we're to shame everyone who does not follow Christ. He's reminding us that those among his people, that there should be a separation mindset from the practices of the culture. And maybe you're here as a guest today. And maybe you just want to, one of the things that maybe you're trying to consider is, is Jesus one of those things I want to add to my plurality of other things that I believe in? And I would warn you, I would, I would warn you to be, be careful considering Jesus to be that type of a God. He is the one who has the final say. And to give yourself to him means he has rule over everything in your life. He becomes supreme. I would consider, I would ask you, and I would plead with you to consider Christ, but I would also ask you to consider the cost. For you will be separated from some of the practices you currently do. That's what Christians do. We, we begin to look and act and react more like Christ every day. And so Christ calls these people to repent. There again in verse 16, therefore repent, if not I, Christ, will come to you, the church in Pergamos, soon and make war against them, those who are leading in false teaching and bringing others with the sword of my mouth. So what would repentance look like then for the church in Pergamos? You see, this is one of the interesting things as Christians we do. Have you ever done this when you're giving counsel to someone? 
you see something in your life and say, brother or sister, you need to repent. And then you stop there. As if all repentance looks exactly the same. Now, repentance is a, it's a turning, right, of, from one thing and the clinging to something else. But we as Christians, we have to be much better at using counseling techniques to help one another. If I say to you, repent, you're like, oh, I want to, but I just don't know what that means or what that looks like. And so what would repentance look like for Pergama here? One, it would look like continuing to cling to Christ in this culture. Two, it would mean calling these false teachers to repent of their sins, and if they're unwilling, then to act as Christ and to remove them from the church. This is why, brothers and sisters, and this sounds so harsh, this is why, though, church discipline is a pivotal part of the body of Christ until Christ returns. But because it is the declaration that there's unrepentant hearts even among us sometimes. But think about that next time you're going to your brother or sister and you see sin in their life and you call them to repent. I encourage you, think through ways what their repentance would look like. They're walking in this path, so to repent would be to stop that and to begin this and to practice this. Well, you know, maybe we'd become so much better counselors of each other if we could do that for one another. This is what Christ is calling this church to do, to repent. If not, he will come and make war against them with the sword of his mouth. I mean, so what gives Jesus the right to talk like this to people? Well, three different ways, I think, in this text that it declares... His attributes. Well, one we saw back in verse 12. Look there. The three things that declare Christ is the one who has the final say. It says, I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, this two-edged sword is a reference back more than likely to Isaiah. It's an allusion to the Messiah prophesied in the book of Isaiah. It says it again in verse 16, right? I will come and judge them with the sword of my mouth. So we know this sword is something that proceeds from his mouth. So listen to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, it's going to be on the screen. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch of his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what he sees, excuse me, or he shall not judge by what his eyes see or uh, or decide disputes, Um, By what his ears hear, but with the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity of the meek of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With his breath, with his lips, he, he shall kill the wicked. Wow. Do we have a, a portrait of Jesus as this kind of God? Meek and mild, gentle and saving, yes. But he is not one we play with. He is not one that we can come down. That's why I love Psalm 2. I would encourage you to go read Psalm 2 when you leave. It says, kiss the hand of this prince. He's going to break the teeth of all those who are against him. God will judge And his judgment is his final say. And Jesus is, Revelation declares, the final judge. The righteous stump of Jesse. 
the king of the line of David. Or listen to Isaiah 49, verse 2. Very similar language, but a different section of prophecy here. It says, listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And he made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Wow. Weapons of war. But you have to imagine, too, the same words that spoke the earth into existence will speak eternal judgment. The power to create life out of nothing is the one who has the final say. And if we're in Christ, if we're clothed in his righteousness as we've been singing, we're in his favor. This frees you to worry about what your neighbor says so that you keep cowering and not speaking truth. This frees you to stop worrying about how many likes you get on this Instagram or, or that Facebook post. Instead, you can boldly, confidently, lovingly, compassionately lead people to the Lord knowing that He is the one who has the final say. So one of the attributes we see that makes Christ this person is He is the one who is the promised Messiah. The one whose words both spoke life into existence and will judge by those same words. But not only that, look here at the final verse of this section as we finish today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna. And I will give a white stone with a name on it, written on it, that no one knows except for the one who receives it. So in all of his letters to the different churches, he promises something at the end. This one, he says, I'm going to give you some manna and a white stone. You're like, what what is that? How does that help us? Well, we need to understand this. There is one who says, I can grant these things. I am the promise keeper. Because I love it in the phrase there, to the one who conquers. And you remember, we see that in every single one of the, what? Seven letters to the seven churches. This is those who walk in the power of the resurrection in our daily lives. And what is he saying? I'm going to give you some hidden manna. What's the hidden manna? Again, multiple different explanations for the hidden manna, but it seems most likely this is a reference to Exodus 16, verses 32 through 34. Listen to them. It says, Moses said, this is exactly what the Lord commanded. Let there be an omer of it to be kept throughout all the generations. So that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord. It's to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people ate manna for 40 years till they came um, to the habitat, to to the habitable land. Um, And they ate the manna till it came to the border of the land of Canaan. So they took manna. Manna was the, the bread from heaven that the, the people of God ate for 40 years. And, and they took some of it and they put it in an old, they put it in another thing. And they put it where? Into the, into the Ark of the Covenant. With the with, with this bud that's the, of Aaron that blossomed and in the Ten Commandments. They, why? Why put those things there? Well, one, it was obviously how God provided, how God fed those people. But the, could anyone ever eat that bread? No. 
Because one, it was in the very presence of God, and no one had access to the presence of God at that time. The high priest could only go into that place one time a year. And that was after a grand ceremony. It seems that the hidden manna kept in the presence of God is a reminder that there is one who has endless resources at his disposal. And that one day there is a meal coming that surpasses everything you will ever need or want in this world. I wonder if there's going to be manna at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't think so. I think we get a description of multiple locations of some much more glorious things than that. But nonetheless, he's saying, don't forget, like, we're threatened by the things of this world, saying, I'll take this away from you, I'll take that away. He's like, I've got hidden manna kept for my people for that marriage supper one day. And I'm going to give it to those who conquer. Don't back down. Don't give in. Don't compromise. So when we're feeling threatened that our earthly resources might be taken, we know there is hidden manna awaiting us in heaven one day. So what about this white stone? It seems this was a cultural reference that they would have understood. Many people say that I think there was like 14 different opinions on what this could have been. Which means we, we want to hold this very humbly. It seems that there was judges in that time and the jury, they would give you either a black stone or a white stone. Black meaning guilty, white meaning not guilty. Evidently, there was lots of cultural amulets worn by people that had their God's names written on it that they would gain strength from. But it seems, more than likely, this is probably because of the manna. There was white stones that were given to victors. If you had some great accomplishment, some great feat, you were given this white stone that had a name written on it. And that gained you access into the victor's feast. It's like your ticket. So it seems in light of the hidden manna here that we see in the white stone, it's probable that these both promises tie together for those who conquer by holding fast to Christ, the one who has the final word, that they will gain entrance into the marriage supper of the Lamb, not because they did these things, but because they cling to the one who did them for him. Think about it. Jesus is throwing the grandest of parties, and he's the only one who can hand out invitations. Why? Because he's got the final say. And the question is, are we going to this final party? This grand feast? And it's not for those who compromise. It's not for those who give in to the whims of false teaching and false doctrine. It is those who cling to Christ, who consider Christ, who fight hard for purity, but not only that, but for living in a way that's honoring to the Lord. See, Jesus lived the life we could not. He died the death that we deserve. He rose from the grave. He stands now victorious as the ascended king. And he is inviting you and me to stand and be bold as conquerors, knowing that we've already been given a name on a white stone that grants us access to the marriage supper's lamb. Marriage lamb sounded funny when it came out. <laughs> the question is, do you believe? No, no, I don't mean, yeah, yeah, I believe, Pastor. And then you go live your life like the world. We can't read re- texts like Revelation and continue to live our lives however we want with one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. He's declaring those who conquer are those who stand for me, who live for me, appropriating their lives for me. 
who cling to me, who fight for doctrine of purity, for love of the world, but not compromise with the world. Stand against the devil and his evil ones with the spiritual forces at work by clinging to one who is greater than he who is in the world. The question is, will we all eat the hidden manna? We know who will because we profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. And we declare with our lives that we believe in this great king. Is this you today? Where might you need to repent and seek after this great king? Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.